Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 and to Acts chapter 1. Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. And we've been studying Luke and Acts, and you know that in the book Acts we have the record of many of the earliest events in the primitive church. And because of that, Acts is very important. It's very important not just because we have the records in that book of many of the apostolic sermons. And that gives us great insight into the doctrine of the apostles, but also what they emphasized and what they de-emphasized. It's also important because in many ways, I believe the letters in the New Testament are really only understandable when they're read against the background of what we understand from Acts and we appreciate what was going on some there. And the book Acts shows us many of the trends of the early development of Christianity and, and it provides examples of the continuing work of Jesus in the world as He poured out His Holy Spirit upon the church as He promised. And you'll recall that the book Acts was written by Paul's traveling companion, Dr. Luke, the evangelist. And you may remember that that book is addressed to the same recipient as Luke's gospel, to Theophilus. And Bible scholars are not agreed on who Theophilus was, but the name Theophilus comes from Greek, from Theos and Phileo, and the name means friend of God or lover of God. So, There are Bible scholars that believe that Luke's Gospel and the second volume that we call Acts is just addressed to all lovers of God, to Christians. I'm not sure that I buy that. But whoever Theophilus actually was, because of what I believe about Holy Scripture, I believe that's true. And that Acts is for you. And Acts is for me. So some believe that Theophilus was a friend of Luke's and that he may have been a Roman official because Luke addresses him um, in his gospel as most excellent Theophilus, which is the way that Roman officials were often addressed. So maybe, maybe. But in any case, the book Acts provides us with eyewitness accounts of many of the great moments in the early life of the church. And I want you to remember that Acts is really just a continuation. It's volume two of the third gospel. And it's a shame that sometimes readers forget that because they just notice that John is between these books and they forget the continuity of these two volumes. But Acts explicitly refers back to Luke's gospel as the, quote, former account or the former treatise, and then it picks up right where Luke left off at the end of volume 1. So if you accept the common authorship of Luke in Acts, and I do, then what you find is that Acts picks up right where Luke ends. Listen to these words from the end of Luke's Gospel. The resurrected Christ has just appeared to His disciples. This is 24, verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy 
and wondered. He said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave to him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now get that. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And that's the end of Luke's Gospel. That's the end of Volume 1. And now here are the first words of Volume 2 of Acts. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments to the apostles he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So I hope you see clearly that what Dr. Luke is presenting us with in the book Acts is just the continuation of the narrative that he began in his gospel. So Acts is just book two, or volume two. And note there in verse three of Acts chapter one, he tells Theophilus that Jesus, quote, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. The Net Bible, the New International Version, and the New American Standard Version all translate that phrase, many infallible proofs, as many convincing proofs. Well, I, I want us to think for a few minutes this afternoon about the infallible proofs that Jesus is alive. The many infallible proofs. Now, you and I, generally, whether we understand and appreciate it or not, you and I, generally, are what historians of philosophy would call Enlightenment thinkers. We just are. We're the heirs of those so influenced by the changes in thought and thinking that occurred during the Great Enlightenment that we often don't even perceive that there might be other ways to think than the way we think. And we might think this is the way people have always thought. I'm here to tell you it's not. Before the Great Enlightenment, proof didn't depend on things like the scientific method. There was no scientific method. Or logic diagrams. There were no logic diagrams. 
or endless empirical testing. No such thing. And especially to minds deeply influenced by Jewish and Hebrew culture. Proof is not the way that you and I think of proof. It's not a geometric proof. There, I've proved it. I can turn my homework in now. So what was, or what was the nature of these many infallible convincing proofs that Dr. Luke mentions? Well, the Greek term tekmerosis, translated here as infallible proofs or as convincing proofs, that term that's used here in Acts 1-3 is unique and doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only time. And the lexical meaning of that term is, listen, that from which something is surely or plainly known, or indubitable, indubitable evidence, or proof. Now, though this particular Greek term doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible, it is used in classical Greek by both Plato and Aristotle to refer to, quote, the strongest proof which can be offered. So what's Dr. Luke talking about here? Well, he might, he might be talking about the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But, well, we'll see. You know that a proof that doesn't prove or convince, it's not really a proof. But there are several eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of the Savior. In Matthew chapter 28, you remember when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the body of Jesus. They went to care for it. And they found the angel in the empty tomb. And then they went to tell the disciples. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. And then in verses 16 and 17, then the 11 disciples went into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, now when Jesus had risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard he was alive and had and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And he upbraided them for their belief, unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he had, was risen. Several eyewitness accounts recorded in the gospel. And what about that beautiful account in Luke's gospel where he records Christ's appearance to those travelers on the road to Emmaus? This is Luke 24. 
as well, beginning in verse 13, the scriptures say, Behold, two of them went that day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And it came to pass while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden and they could not know him. And he said to them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. (coughs) And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it, as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O fools, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as if he would have gone further. But they constrained them, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as they sat at meat, he took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? And while he opened unto us the scriptures. Well, that one sends shivers up and down my spine. And you'll remember these as well. In John 20 and 21, the scripture records the resurrected Son of God appearing to Mary Magdalene and to the disciples without Thomas. And then eight days later to the disciples with Thomas and then to all the disciples at the Sea of Tiberius. And you remember from our earlier reading at the end of Luke that the disciples witnessed Christ's ascension into heaven. And in Paul's gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, I delivered to you first that which I received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So is that what Luke's talking about? 
There are a lot of eyewitnesses to the reality of the resurrected Christ. He was dead. He's alive. A lot of people saw Jesus after His resurrection from the dead. And certainly, certainly the apostles were fully convinced that Jesus had come back from the dead. They were fully convinced. Do you believe that? I want to read a quotation to you from Simon Greenleaf. He was a professor at law of law at Harvard University. And Simon Greenleaf was a professor at Harvard back when there were a lot of Christians at Harvard. And he was a Christian and an author of a three-volume work in jurisprudence called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. In the mid-1800s, in the mid-19th century, he wrote a book called Testimony of the Evangelists, comma, examined by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. So you got a lawyer reading the Gospels. Interesting. And listen to, listen to Greenleaf. The great truths which the apostles declared were that Christ had risen from the dead and that only through repentance from sin and faith in Him could men hope for salvation. This doctrine they asserted with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragements, but in the face of the most appalling errors that can be presented to the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teachings of his disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet, this faith they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured, undismayed, nay, rejoicing, as one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. The annals of military warfare scarcely afford an example of the one like heroic constancy, patient and unblenching courage of these men. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. Well, I really like that quotation. Certainly, surely the apostles were fully convinced that Jesus had come back from the dead. They staked their lives upon it. 
And they remind their readers of that fact. In 1 John chapter 1, the beloved apostle reminds his readers, we've seen Him. We've been with Him. We touched Him. I handled Him. Don't tell me it was a ghost. John tells them, this letter that you're reading, it's from an eyewitness to the Christ. He's, John's, John's insistent, hey, 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 I was there. I was there. So thank God. Thank God for the apostolic record of the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. The accounts of Jesus of Nazareth who was dead and has now been seen alive, walking, talking, eating, interacting, alive. And brothers and sisters, listen. Certainly, eyewitness testimony can offer some pretty convincing proof. Don't you think? But as impressive as eyewitness testimony is, I just don't believe that that's all that Dr. Luke is talking about when he mentions these many convincing, many infallible proofs. I don't believe that's all because, listen... Eyewitness testimony can be incredibly unreliable. I'm sure you know that. You see, often our fallen human senses are not reliable. And since our fallen human senses are often not reliable, they cannot ultimately be the basis of truth or sure truth. I tell you, friend, listen, it troubles me. It troubles me when I hear of these men being released from prison because of the Innocence Project. You know about the Innocence Project? But listen, DNA evidence validates, proves, DNA evidence validates their claims that they were not the rapist or they were not the murderer. And so they're, they're released. And I say, it troubles me, and it, it troubles me, listen, it troubles me that they spent time in a prison, in a hell on earth, for something they didn't do. But the other thing that is really troubling is that often, most often, almost every time, the thing that got them cast into prison was eyewitness testimony. And then the DNA evidence contradicts the eyewitness testimony. (coughs) The great continental philosopher René Descartes and some other philosophers have wondered whether what we perceive is a dream or an illusion or is it real? Maybe an evil demon jacked into your brain last night and... (laughs) but listen even if we even if we dismiss such radical doubt everyone here should know that their senses play tricks on them from time to time don't you know that you know those funny mirrors at the state fair they distort how we look mirages and holograms 
and movie type special effects, they can fool us. The refraction of light in water makes it look like things are one place when they're not. They're not there, it's there. And that's just our eyes. Our ears play tricks on us too. We hear things that aren't there, do you? I hear voices in the night. One of my children and my wife has often walked in and said, Did you call me? Or what did you say? I ain't said nothing. I'm living with a bunch of crazy people. And then I remember I'm just like them. Because she says, I didn't call you. I thought I heard you. Huh. You must be hearing things, old man. And even, listen, even our sense of feeling and touch can deceive us. Did you know that if you touch dry ice, something that is very, very, very cold, if you touch dry ice, you will feel like it's burning you. Did you know that? And if you couldn't see, you'd say, it's burning me. Well, it's doing the exact opposite. Do you see that? It's not burning, it's freezing. If you couldn't see it was ice, your testimony would probably be, something burning hot touched me. Well, that would be a lie. Something freezing cold touched you. That's the opposite of burning hot. What about when we're sitting in the very same room, right next to each other, and my wife says, I'm freezing. And I was just about to get up and turn the ceiling fan on. Oh, is it cold in the room? Or is it hot? Well, it depends on who you ask. And what about smell? How is it, Eric, that the smell of curry is so attractive to some folks? But when I smell it, I need to go the other way. How could that... What's going on? I can remember times back when Jeannie was pregnant with one of these babies, and she would say, what is that smell? And I'd be like, baby, I don't smell anything. Or she would smell some innocuous odor, and she'd say, oh, that stinks. Things that wouldn't normally bother her. What's going on? Or have you ever had the misfortune of having your meal ruined for you psychologically because somebody that you're sitting next to, they say, does this taste funny? <laughs> and it tasted just fine to you, and now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, it, uh, I don't know, maybe. Now that you mention it, what happened? Listen, brothers and sisters, we all know that our tastes and our senses and our perceptions are relative. I hope you know that. And though they're critically important and necessary and helpful, they will and they can and they do deceive us. So I believe, though I believe that Luke's many infallible proofs must include the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, that just can't be all of it. That just can't be all of it. And it seems to me 
that if that's all Luke had in mind, that would contradict Scripture. And do you know what a contradiction is? It's from the Latin, and it means to speak against. Contra, against. Diction, like dictionary, a word against. That's a contradiction. Contradiction is a word against. And it seems to me that if the eyewitness accounts to Christ's resurrection was all that Luke meant when he's talking about many infallible proofs, that would contradict Scripture because the Bible teaches that Christians walk by faith, not by sight. And if all we got is a few eyewitness accounts, we ain't got much. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. And listen, though the Bible often cites physical evidence, its emphasis is always upon faith. Let me say that again, just listen. The Bible often cites physical evidence, but the emphasis of Holy Scripture is always upon faith. Scripture emphasizes faith over evidence. So much so, listen, so much so that miracles, as real as they are, are not viewed or employed as proof of the truth. Proof is not their proper function. You see, miracles don't prove. Do you understand that? They may support or substantiate, but miracles don't prove anything. Certainly miracles are confirmative, but they can't prove. And I hope you understand that. Otherwise, why would the Scriptures warn of fake signs from false prophets? What did the magicians in Pharaoh's court do when Moses threw down his said, well, we can do that too. Watch this. Listen to this warning to the old covenant people of God. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake to thee, saying, let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Jehovah your God proveth you to know whether you love Jehovah your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Jehovah your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and serve Him and cleave unto Him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from Jehovah your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust thee out of the way which Jehovah thy God hath commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put away evil from the midst of thee. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. Moses just assumes that these guys can do miracles. And why did Jesus say, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect? Matthew 24, 24. Do you get that warning? Miracles don't prove. And why did Jesus rebuke Thomas for his lack of faith? and his over-reliance on his senses. He said, Thomas, reach hither thy finger, 
and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and have believed. So friend, listen, the philosophy of Jesus is this. Listen, the philosophy of Jesus is if men won't believe the words of Holy Scripture, miracles won't convince them either. If they will not believe the words of Holy Scripture, miracles will not convince them. Don't you remember when Jesus told that story about Lazarus and the rich man? They had died and the rich man was very uncomfortable and he wanted to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers. You remember that? And at the end of the story, Jesus quotes Father Abraham who said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, what are Moses and the prophets? Holy Scripture. Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 16.31 Well, friend, listen. One has risen from the dead, and they still don't believe. If you do, thank God. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If they won't believe the Scriptures, even a miracle won't convince them. But you see, beloved, listen, miracles are always accepted from a stance of faith, not of doubt. Did did you understand that? Miracles are always accepted from a stance of faith, not of doubt. Miracles are confirmative. It'll help your faith. I can look back at my life and see stuff God's done and say the fingerprints of God are all over my life. I can't believe some of the stuff that's happened in my life would have happened randomly. That would take more faith than it would take for me to believe that God's got His hand on me. If the only thing that Luke meant was that seeing Christ's risen body is what convinced the apostles, then his many infallible proofs must, must refer only to seeing the risen Christ. But, listen... <laughs> Just seeing the risen Savior, as wonderful as that must have been, that hardly amounts to many infallible proofs. And neither does seeing, hearing, and touching Him amount to many infallible proofs. Somebody might make a case that many people saw Him, but Acts 1 verse 3 doesn't say, one infallible proof shown to many people. It doesn't say that. It says many infallible proofs or many convincing proofs. Or somebody might say that many infallible proofs just means that many times Jesus appeared to the apostles over the 40 days between His resurrection and the ascension. But it doesn't say one infallible proof shown many times. It says many convincing proofs. So 40 appearances over 40 days would still be just one proof. Just as one witness giving the same testimony 40 times 
in a court of law would still be just one witness. You see? In addition to there being witnesses to the reality of the resurrected Jesus, listen, the really, really convincing proof that Jesus gave to His disciples, please listen, the really, really convincing proof that He gave is when He opened their understanding so that they could understand the Scriptures. I told you we're talking about a pre-enlightenment proof. We're talking about the way Jews think. We're talking about prophecy fulfilled. Look back to Luke 24, verses 45 through 47. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And and listen, it wasn't just his immediate disciples that he did this for. The opening of the understanding to the Holy Scriptures was what he did for those disciples on the Emmaus Road. Same thing. And remember their response from verse 32. Didn't our hearts burn within us when He talked to us by the way? When He did what? When He opened to us the Scriptures? What do you mean He opened them? Like a book? No, He opened them. They had never seen them before. They had never been able to see what they saw now. Jesus showed them that all the way back to Moses and all through the prophets, the whole book was about Him. Beloved, listen. That convinced them. It really convinced them. It proved it to them. It showed them that what Jesus had done was necessary according to the Scriptures. It showed them that it could not have been otherwise. The Holy Scriptures demanded it. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass away until all be fulfilled. You see, He said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Many infallible proofs. Many infallible proofs. Many convincing proofs. How many? Way over half a Bible full. You see, when the apostles saw Jesus, they wondered but they didn't believe. It's when they comprehended the Scriptures about Christ's death and resurrection. Then they believed. This is Him. It's Him. It's Him. (coughs) He had to rise from the dead because the Scriptures said He had to. (coughs) Think with me for a minute, brothers and sisters. 
If you consider the prior context of Luke, the many convincing proofs of Christ's resurrection are not only the fact that the apostles were eyewitnesses to the reality of the resurrected Christ, the many convincing proofs involved Jesus showing them from the law of Moses and from the prophets and from the Psalms that Christ must necessarily suffer and die and rise again. Old Testament is really, really, really important. Proof texts from thousands of years. Thank you. Proof texts from thousands of years of holy Old Covenant scriptures properly examined convincingly and infallibly by the convincing and infallible Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, Eric? Jesus saying, let's have a little Bible study. Let me show you something. That's exactly what happened. And they were never the same. Never the same again. To the doctor... To the evangelist Luke, that constituted many infallible proofs. He was convinced. From the proto-evangelion of Genesis 3 to the blessing of the whole earth through Abraham's seed to the messianic psalms to the suffering servant of Isaiah from Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the whale to Joel's Pentecostal prophecy The Holy Scriptures are filled with convincing proofs that Jesus is the Christ and that He must needs suffer and die and rise again. Give me just a minute, brothers and sisters. The emphasis on scriptural faith as proof is not to deny the physical evidence of the resurrection. Not at all. Not at all. Our Lord Jesus Christ objectively rose from the dead, and the visual evidence agrees to that fact. And the Gospels and the Epistles assert as convincing the evidence of these eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Christ. But Luke 24 and Acts 1-3 teach that the real proof was not just the visual evidence. Not just that. It was the messianic prophecies of the Old Covenant Scriptures as well. And that is huge. It was Jesus from Genesis to Malachi. Proof, proof, proof. And the technique that the holy apostles used agrees with that. You see, although Peter professed to have actually, personally seen the risen Savior... In Acts 2, 24-32, he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8-11, through 11, and he preaches about the implication of that messianic psalm. Why? To try to convince his hearers that Jesus is the Christ. He could have just said, well, you should just believe me because I saw it. And he does say, I saw him. But then he, he, he burns a whole lot of ink showing how Christ is in the Old Testament. In Acts 17, 2 and 3, the Bible says that when Paul was in Thessalonica, he, quote, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, 
opening them and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Paul, I thought you said he knocked you off your horse on a road and that you saw him. Well, I did. But let's look at the Bible. ESV, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So, beloved, listen. Speaking broadly, the prophets, the Lord, and the apostles routinely proved their points by appealing to Holy Scripture. Hmm. Good technique for us, Christians. They showed that the whole book, this whole book, is all ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately about the Savior. Many infallible proofs. Many convincing proofs. Listen, if you want truth, if you want life, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want hope, if you want love, anybody want that? All that? If you want all that, the only place you'll find it is in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of the living God, the Christ. And He is alive. Let's stand for prayer.